The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Did you know that Schneider has built more microgrids in the U.S. than anyone else? These self-contained electrical networks allow you to generate your own electricity on-site and use it when you need it most. Keep your power on during a grid outage, store electricity, and sell it back during peak times. Integrate with renewables like wind and solar. With a microgrid, you get energy control on your own terms. See what's possible at www.se.com slash us slash microgrid or follow the link in the show notes. The Interchange is brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom Energy is transforming the way businesses and communities take charge of their energy supply through resilient, predictable, and zero-carbon solutions. Bloom's on-site energy platform provides unparalleled control for those looking to secure clean, reliable 24-7 power that scales to meet critical business needs. Bloom's platform eliminates outage and price risk while accelerating us toward a zero-carbon future. Visit bloomenergy.com slash theenergygang to take charge today. If you think about it in some quarters, like in Europe, in the US, gas had become a dirty word. And the only thing that policymakers wanted to talk about is hydrogen and green deals. And gas is coming back with a revenge with very high prices, unheard of um, in, in all the regions, especially in Europe and in Asia. What the frack is happening with natural gas? This is The Interchange. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. Well, it feels like a long time ago at this point, but if you'll remember in early mid 2020, as the pandemic was sweeping around the world, one of the side effects at that point was an energy price crash. We actually did an episode of this show trying to figure out how it was possible that oil prices fell to negative $40 per barrel in some cases. Well, times have changed. Oil, for one thing, has become more expensive again, up over $100 a barrel today. But much more acute is what's happening with natural gas, particularly in Europe and in Asia. In the United States, natural gas prices have doubled over the past year, but in parts of Europe, the price has risen more than 5x. So as you might expect, this is wreaking havoc all over the place. And the effects are really only just beginning. We're seeing stories of power shortages in China, fertilizer plants being shut down in the UK, fears about home heating costs in the Northeast as winter approaches. Uh, it's going to be bad for a while. So as usual, when these crazy energy market swings happen, I wonder what the hell is going on? How long might it last? And what does it tell us about the future? Those were the questions at hand for my conversation with Leslie Palti Guzman. Leslie is the president of Gas Vista, and as you'll hear, there's no one more expert in picking apart the natural gas market and its various strands than Leslie. So I found this enormously informative. Hope you will too. Leslie, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Excited to have you here, uh, especially because I have been watching with uh, confusion and you know, astounded by what's going on in the world of natural gas and need somebody and uh, who's smart like yourself to tell me what's going on here. So that is our goal. We're going to figure out what is going on in natural gas right now and what it means. Let's start by taking a sort of tour around the world. Give me the, the state of affairs as it stands today with regard to the natural gas market and natural gas prices. Well, first off, what's very interesting to me is that if you think about it in some quarters, like in Europe, in the US, 
gas had become a dirty word. And the only thing that policymakers wanted to talk about is hydrogen and green deals. And gas is coming back with a revenge with very high prices, unheard of um, in, in all the regions. Um, so in the US, in proportion to what it was, but especially in Europe and in Asia. And, you know, like the numbers are speaking for themselves. Like last year, during the worst of COVID-19, the pandemic, gas prices were record low, $4 per million BTU. And now on the spot price in Europe and in Asia, we have above $30 per million BTU. So it requires a little bit of nuance because those are spot prices and they only represent one-off transactions here and there. It's not the majority of the transactions, far from there. But it's indicative of how far we've been in terms of um, um, of change in the market. Um, so, you know, I think it's... Um, it's time to to grasp what what happened, why we're there, and uh, and we'll try to to do just that. Right. So we'll talk about what what that's causing and what's causing that. But how long have we been in this price spike at this point? When did prices start rising like this? And was it predictable? I mean, you know, we knew we were coming out of record low prices. Was it foreseeable that it would be like this, or is this totally unexpected? So we were previously in a cycle of uh, oversupply in the market, and then COVID happened. And I think it was hard to predict how f how fast demand would recover, especially in Asia and in China. Um, and there has been some maintenance issues, supply outage in different liquefaction plants around the world. So I don't think it was that easy to predict because there are you know, a, a long laundry list, actually, of factors that converge at the same time to make this crisis happen. Uh, some are cyclical, some are more like structural. And um, so I would say like that prices have been starting to rise like since last winter, um, more or less. Um, and, you know, what's happening now um, will have consequences like for the population because you know, clearly some Europeans are going to see their electricity electricity bill already like um, skyrocketing. Um, but the industry also, because we tend to forget, but gas is being used a lot in the industrial sector, chemical sector. So we've started to see like uh, factories closing, um, you know, damage uh, already like uh, caused by uh, demand destruction. Um, and the global economy in, in general may suffer because we see a like a cross commodity impact actually. So I want to talk a little bit more about the those impacts that you described. But first, you mentioned that these price spikes that we've heard and the the eye popping high prices that are getting quoted are spot prices, which do not represent the majority of the market. So help me reconcile like how much of the gas market is traded in spot markets. Uh, versus what is long-term contracted. And so if, if most of it is long-term contracted, why do these price spikes have such enormous impacts on everything downstream, everything where gas is used? Yeah, very good question. So the gas market is still very regional and we have like very different situations, whether we're in the US or in Europe or in Asia. So Europe right now, I would say that the shift has been very progressive and gradual towards more flexible hub-based supply. Um, and that includes pipeline and LNG. 
Um, so pipeline is predominantly Russia. And, uh, and LNG is coming from various sources, Qatar, the US, Nigeria, Algeria, um, many different um, uh, suppliers. I think now in Europe, we're at a point where it's probably only 30% of contracts of supply that is still long-term contracts, so based on more like uh, oil indexation, and the rest is more spot and, and flexible. In, in Asia, it's the reverse. It's still very much uh, 80% or 70% contracted and indexed to oil versus 20 or 30% spot indexed. Um, so the, the impact varies a lot depending on the region, but in winter, because gas is still a very seasonal play and weather has a huge impact, if some countries wanted to make up the difference with their contracted volumes and go to the spot market, well, right now they may pause and say, well, you know, especially emerging markets, they cannot afford you know, those high prices, it's not sustainable. Like right now, you know, the headlines are insane, unhealthy, uh, crazy. Um, so clearly, you know, it's not based on uh, on fundamentals solely. So let's talk about some of the impacts then, what we're already seeing happen. You, you mentioned a couple of them, impacts in Europe on uh, residential cost consumers of both electricity and natural gas. Uh, you mentioned impacts on industry and plants getting shut down. What, what have we seen already as the sort of downstream impacts? So one of the first impacts that ha has emerged is fuel switching. Uh, because when gas um, goes up, some um, users may try to find a more affordable fuel. So in power generation, some plants uh, still have the possibility to switch to diesel, fuel oil, or coal. And we've seen that um, in Europe, in Asia. However, this year, what's interesting is that there has been also a coal shortage. Um, so I think like the preference in several countries has been to switch to diesel. And like the bad consequence is that it's dirtier even, you know, than gas. Like you have a kind of hierarchy in fossil fuel and, you know, it's like oil, coal, kind of the dirtiest and then gas. And so we end up burning the dirtiest fuels right now because of the lack of um, affordable gas. Another consequence, yeah, has been like the power outages and we're going to hear more about it. So, and electricity rationing. So I think in China, they started doing like rationing of electricity. And in India, you had big headlines today, actually in the news about um, power outages, because if they don't have enough coal, don't have enough gas, well, the consequence is going to be power outage. So those are two big consequence, uh, consequences. And then we see also um, in the industrial sector, some closure of uh, industrial plants, our fertilizer plants, like in the UK, two shut down recently. Uh, we're seeing also factories that are using gas, uh, not just as a feedstock, but also for heating. Um, so some like cement, uh, glass, ceramic, those are like in energy intensive industries that require gas um, for, for its high temperature. And we may see also closure of those plants. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's some of these impacts that are going to take a while to flow through to consumers, but the fertilizer one is a good one. You know, I, I think a lot of folks don't realize that there aren't that many 
Haber-Bosch facilities that produce ammonia in the world. There are like 300, some of them. And some of the big ones in, you mentioned two in the UK, uh, Yara, I think shut down a couple in, in Norway. Um, you know, that has a meaningful impact on fertilizer supply, which ultimately has an impact on food prices. And so there will be downstream impacts that people will feel because food prices will increase that, that comes all the way back to the price of natural gas being at record highs. So it's, it's definitely impactful throughout the economy when spikes like this happen. Exactly. Yeah. Like nobody should have made, you know, should be in a position to make a choice between heating or eating. The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Are you looking for more energy control but worry about the upfront costs of a microgrid and renewables? Schneider's got you covered. Schneider Electric offers energy as a service for customers who spend $40,000 or more each month on energy. With energy as a service, you get customized solutions to help you meet goals for sustainability, efficiency, and cost control, including a microgrid and adjacent energy infrastructure. Schneider also handles every step of the process and assumes financial and operational risks. Upgraded electrical equipment, reduced emissions, predictable long-term pricing, energy as a service provides all this and more. Visit se.com slash us slash EAAS, or just follow the link in the show notes, and there you'll find if energy as a service is right for you. We're also brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom is accelerating the hydrogen economy by partnering with industry leaders to produce clean green hydrogen. Bloom's electrolyzer uses electricity and heat from a variety of renewable energy sources like concentrated solar power, solar panels, and nuclear to generate green hydrogen at scale. Bloom's pioneering solid oxide fuel cell platform leverages technology originally developed for Mars. Bloom's platform has the flexibility to be deployed as a distributed generator of electricity or as an electrolyzer to produce green hydrogen. Leveraging scale and experience, Bloom provides solutions needed to propel our world toward a better energy future. Learn more at bloomenergy.com slash the energy gang. So let's talk about why this is happening. Um, you alluded to some of this, but let's let's start with the demand side. What is uh, what is increasing demand for natural gas that is causing a crunch? Um, so, like in terms of like more cyclical factors, like we've seen on the demand side, we've seen that past winter was a long winter in Europe, and so Europe has arrived into this season with lower inventories than in the past. However, you know, I think. There has been a lot of um, exaggeration maybe on the level of inventories in Europe. Right now it's at 70% or 76% full, which is not a worrying level. Like it's not high, but it's not, you know, a worrying level. Um, another uh, factor has been like a stronger than expected recovery post uh, the pandemic. I mean, we're still in the pandemic, but... Things have been getting better in different parts of the world. And I think that the supply chain has not been following the, the gas supply chain. Um, so there has been some maintenance, you know, delayed of maintenance in several liquefaction plants or longer maintenance or outages, more outages than uh, on regular time at different various liquefaction plants around the world. Um, but to, the demand has been more fierce than anticipated. So those are two um, demand-related um, factor, but I see more supply-actually-related factor also. Um, so there has been like a hydro shortage in big markets like Turkey, 
um, Brazil and China. And so gas has been comp compensating for those hydro uh, shortage. There has been also less wind blowing um, in different parts of the world. Um, and there has been also, uh, I think, a Russian factor. Um, so Russia has been um, exercising an output management strategy, withholding some flexible supply to Europe. And that had, a, you know, a, a very uh, outsized role, I think, in influence in, in the level of prices that we see. And then there are more like structural factors that I think will that will keep seeing and they are not going to go away tomorrow. So those are, um, you know, the evolution from coal to gas in many countries in Asia, but also in Eastern Europe, for example. And so China has been switching, you know, a lot of its industries, but also a residential use to, to gas in recent years and continue to do so. And that has, you know, triggered much more demand for gas. Um, there has been also, um, um, you know, on the demand side, I think uh, we see like different players in the market right now, but including like financial players, and they have kind of a speculative role in the market. So it's, that's why earlier I mentioned that the market may not be just, you know, what we see a result of fundamentals, but I think there is also a lot of speculation uh, going on with uh, with traders. And so it's not just based on physical, what we see, but also on um, on the financial play. And then on the supply side, uh, there is also like a lack of uh, investment upstream and on liquefaction plants, declining supply in Europe, domestic supply. Um, so, you know, historical suppliers um, in, in the Netherlands or in Norway have, have declined supply, uh, gas supply that used to fuel the, the continent. Um, so, you know, a, a long, again, a long land release, there is not just one variable, um, but I think, um, you know, China, Russia have had um, kind of outsized role in, in what's going on. So uh, you mentioned the issues on the supply side. I mean, one of the questions, obviously, you know, these markets tend to be cyclical to some degree. And so when you have a price spike like this, supply would at least want to react and open up more supply, which would then flood the market, which then drive prices down. Um, to what extent is that possible? In the natural gas ecosystem, and how regional is that? Can supply re respond in some places and not in other places? Yeah, that's a very good question. So, like something that puzzled me, like um, you know, and I looked at the data recently, is why is the U.S. the only supplier that over the past two years basically has increased supply? And if you look like on the LNG side, like the big exporter, Russia, Qatar, Australia, the U.S. They haven't uh, increased, you know, exports and capacity. Like sometimes you have suppliers that are able to go a little bit above nameplate capacity. And especially when there are high prices and they want to reap the benefits of those high prices, they may be inclined to go above nameplate capacity. And like for a while now, Qatar has just produced its 77 million ton every year, more or less. I think years to the... Um, Qatar Petroleum, which is now Qatar Energy, or the minister announced that they would produce 80 million this year. So it means that they have the ability when they want to push a little bit their liquefaction plant. Some of that requires planning, um, but to a certain extent, I think it's possible. Um, you hear a very mixed message from Russia 
saying one day that uh, yes, they can uh, supply more to Europe. Uh, other times you hear, no, we have supply shortage and supply issue, so it's hard to um, figure out what's uh, real. Um, but I think you know, in the short, short term, we may see. Um, large LNG supplier or smaller LNG supplier that had so far not exerted their um, flexible supply, like ramping up if they can. Um, but there has been another problem in, on the LNG supplier side is that many historical suppliers have declining output, like Trinidad, Algeria. Those ones are not going to be able to to ramp up just because they have feed gas issues and they have other technical issues. But I think some of them will be able to adjust. And um, however, you know, I think there will be two schools um, of thoughts between suppliers. Uh, the one that want to uh, manage output because they want they have an eye on the level of prices and the other one that just want to grab market share and high prices as fast as possible. So that speaks to then the sort of what comes next here. Is there is there relief from these high prices on the near term horizon and what would enable it? Or is it going to get worse because we're headed into winter in the Northern Hemisphere and if it's a cold winter, then demand is going to increase even further and we could see prices you know go even higher than they are today. Yeah. So I think, you know, two things can happen and one depends on the weather. Are we going to have a, um, you know, mild winter? And the second one is Russia. And can Russia um, decide to be kind enough to help the Europeans and open the valves, basically? Um, so, you know, hope of <laughs> it's not really a good strategy. And I would tell the European Commission, you know, they need a little bit more than that. Um but um, so I think, you know, in the short, short term, there is not much that can be done. But I, I think prices will remain high this winter, whatever happens. In the most optimistic scenario, more gas is flowing from Russia and the winter is not that severe. And we may see prices going slightly down, but still double digit. Then, you know, for 2022, we need to look into... Uh, more supply coming, actually, that was already planned way ahead from the U.S. So there are new projects coming online in the U.S. Uh, also, towards the end of 2022, more supply is coming from Mozambique and Indonesia, if there are no further delays. So those are good supply news stories that will make the market less tight. What do you think the longer-term impacts of this might be? Let's assume that you know, whatever happens over the next 12 months, that sort of the cycle, th this part of the cycle ends over the next year, 18 months, and we end up back in some equilibrium at prices that are well below where they are today, maybe above where they were a year ago, but back in some sense of normalcy. Or will there be lasting impacts on the natural gas market and on natural gas demand? Or are we just, you know, in the peak of a cycle right now? Um, so I think there will be, you know, two big consequences and, and you, you start to, to have debate actually about it. I think like the takeaway from this crisis, is it going to be to double down on renewable or to double down on gas? Right. And I think we need both actually. Uh, I think, you know, we need, um, to reduce, you know, for many countries, many countries would want to reduce their uh, vulnerability to fluctuation of commodity prices and being more independent and have their own renewable production and, you know, eyes on 
hydrogen and, and, and other fuels or even maybe rethink um, the phasing out of nuclear in some countries and revive nuclear plants. Um, but I think there will be also um, um, a current to go into more gas uh, because after all, uh, we need it for the energy transition and we need a, um, a backup to re intermittent renewable and but we need it to be green so i think you know it's going to be potentially new investments but into um, leak free um you know reduced methane car low carbon uh, gas that would flow into uh, in, into the market i think the other area that's interesting to talk about is um so how we think about resilience and reliability. Natural gas in, in some contexts has been a savior in situations where you have power outages, for example, and you can have a backup natural gas generator. Um, but now we also have these issues in some places right now where there's a natural gas shortage. So how do you think about natural gas's role in the need, I would say the growing need for resilience? Mm -hmm. So I think you know this crisis is going to prove maybe um, policymakers that we need a diversity even in the power mix, and that you know it will be a, a country by country approach because each country needs to use what the, what they already have uh, in the mix and what's going to be you know um, easy for them to um, to uh, you know to to bring on if they don't have like a, a certain fuel so. You know, I think uh, for Pakistan, which is already a gas-based economy, it makes sense, you know, to import LNG. For a country in sub-Saharan Africa that has not uh, yet been exposed to gas at all, it may make sense to look at other fuels. So, it, you know, it's going to be a country-by-country -country approach. Uh, but I think that um, in in the electricity mix, uh, we need diversity, and and that will bring you know resilience uh, and reliability. So and you know I'm bringing back again nuclear. I mean you need you need at one point like um, a fuel that is flexible and that can also uh, be low carbon. And I think you know in the future gas, uh, if we manage to uh, bring online those new technologies such as carbon capture, air capture, um, and you know there are ongoing efforts uh, to lower the the carbon intensity of gas, and and gas will evolve. Also, you increasingly hear about uh, mix mixes of gases, um, so hydrogen and gas, or biogas and gas. Um, so I think there will be some. Um, you know, innovations here to watch uh, where gas is still going to be part of the mix, uh, but maybe, you know, the an abated, an abated gas will diminish. All right. So gun to your head, where are we in 12 months? Um, so in 12 months, we are at a place where it's a reckoning, right? And I'm thinking here about the... The European Commission, for example, I think you know th there is some kind of um, of deep thinking that has to be done in terms of uh, um, bridging, a, you know, the gap between the long-term aspirations and we need to be ambitious with climate change and decarbonization and the reality where we still need gas and some fossil fuels in our energy systems. 
And and I think, you know, there has been a lot of rhetoric at different levels, different countries, international organizations that have uh, discouraged investments, put a lot of pressures on investors and international oil and gas companies. And, and, and we're going to start to see the impact. So as a society, I think there are many questions that we need to, to ask ourselves. And, you know, for me, like I'm, I've always been very interested in geopolitics. So I'm looking also at the impact on the geopolitical side. And, and I think, you know, this um, price crunch is going to be a boon for, um, maybe for the US because it will add one or two uh, liquefaction projects but also for Qatar, for Russia, and non-OECD suppliers. And so, you know, there, there is an opportunity, there used to be an opportunity for to increase Europe's share, um, like dependence on OECD suppliers, but we're switching back to maybe a phase where we're going to be increasingly more dependent on Russian gas and other suppliers. Um, and so that would be a failure in terms of energy security, I think. All right. Well, we'll check back in in a year and see whether all of that has come true. But in the meantime, uh, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Shail. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Leslie Palti Guzman is the president of Gas Vista. The Interchange is a co-production of Postscript Media and Wood McKenzie. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf and Stephen Lacey. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange.